it, and it was a celebration, the end of an era, the ending of the book of Luke. We've been through, do you guys know that, that we ended Luke last week? Okay, good. You guys are, okay, that's perfect. So, um, we are very excited about that, and we celebrated it, and we think it's amazing and fantastic, but we also don't take ourselves too seriously. If you don't know that, you're about to find that out. We don't take ourselves too seriously, and last Sunday during a Covenant Partner meeting, we showed a little video that we want to share with you all, and this is just a little memory lane walk through our time with the book of Luke. I hope you enjoy it. We're starting here a series on the book of Luke that could last anywhere from six months to six years. The book of Luke, we started about a month ago and we're already up to verse five. And if you don't have children, that is one sign that you're not blessed by God. Chapter one, verse 26. I'm here to burn up families. I'm gonna send a fire that's gonna blow apart families. Yippee! And remind yourself that God hates marriage. Please turn to the book of Luke. And so you can divorce your wife really for, for any reason. Turn to the book of Luke. Some of you who are more stupid may have noticed that I'm a white guy. Yeah, I'm not sure where I am or what I'm doing, but I have to go to the bathroom. I was mooning the heavenly angels all the way into the shore. I once was young and vibrant. Today we're gonna really go forward with a quantum leap, uh, verses five, six, and seven. I would go through the fires of hell if I had to to rescue the President of the United States. In six months of studying Luke, we've gotten all the way up to chapter 2, verse 36. This decade, we're studying the book of Luke, and we're doing the book of Luke for the last couple dozen years. We've been looking at Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 for the last two weeks. And we're going to look at it again this week. We've been for the last, I'm told it's about five years now, going through the book of Luke. We are continuing our study of the book of... Right. If you're not getting out once in a while and having a good time, you're disobeying God. Hey, I'll tell you how you use math. <laughs> this gal can fight vampires like nobody I've ever seen. And just kind of machine gun them at the people. <laughs> Luke chapter 11. In fact, if you just believe and receive, you'll, you, you can be rich. The ceiling fan just turned into a giant piece of crap and fell on me. <laughs> I sinned quite a bit. I'm just going to keep burning and burning and burning. It doesn't matter whether your life actually changes or not as long as you prayed the sinner's prayer. So reading out of the book of Luke, and this is the third time we've looked at these passages. With most of my messages, you can doze off for most of it and you won't miss much at all. Uh, this is really not church. This is a waste of time. He's the cosmic pyromaniac. Sir, did you shed a tear? Tornadoes tend to strike more in the most sinful places. Okay, I'll go to the shrink tomorrow if you'll go for that bad breath that you've got, all right? That's the deal we're going to have here. Feel bad about your sins or God is going to torture you forever in hell. Are you ready? I'm in heaven, I'm in hell, I'm in heaven, I'm in hell, I'm saved, I'm lost, I'm saved, I'm loved. Apply the blood, revoke the blood, apply the blood, revoke the blood, apply, revoke, apply, revoke, apply, revoke. White ADD man trying to preach. <laughs> What, 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 what? Surprise! Hello? What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Now, if any part of that gets on YouTube, I'm done. I mean, it's just. God hates marriage. <laughs> White ADD man trying to preach. Uh, 
So I guess, uh, you know, those are the highlights of the last six years study of the book of Luke. That's about all we learned right there. That kind of covers it. <laughs> all right. But it is the end of an era, the beginning of a new era, as we are now moving on to a new book of the Bible. Believe it or not, there are other books of the Bible. It's been great. I loved going through the book of Luke. But now we're going to change up a little bit and even go into a different genre, a different type of literature. Gospels are about... Uh, you know, telling the story of Jesus and the events of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. We're now going to look at an epistle, the epistle to the Colossians. And uh, unlike Gospels, epistles are, are instructionary and they're about specific things that are going on in a particular congregation. So uh, we're looking at the book of Colossians here. And this study could last anywhere from six weeks to six months, six years. I didn't know it was so prophetic. I mean, that was pretty close. I was just guessing six years, and I was off by two, two months, but you can't stone me for that. That's close enough. So now we're into the book of Colossians. I'm going to entitle this message, this inaugural message on the book of Colossians, uh, Our Permanent Residence. Because um, we'll see here, uh, at the second half of the message anyways, that it's about our, our abiding in Christ, taking up a residency in Christ. And is there a weird buzz sound going on around here? I'm a white ADD guy trying to preach here. There's some kind of a, what is that? Okay, well, someone look into that. and take, I think we're being invaded by aliens, UFOs. We're being attacked! That guy last week, he was off by one week. We missed the rapture, but now, we're, now he's coming back. For, anyways. So this is the book of Colossians. Let's look at it. The first three verses. Paul is writing an epistle here, and he has the basic format of the way you'd write epistles in the first century. The way you do it is you identify who you are, who, identify who your audience is, and then uh, give thanks for them. Uh, so Paul follows that format, but he, he Christianizes it. Good, the sound's gone. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always, and here's the thanksgiving, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for what you did in the, uh, our study of the book of Luke and just the way you changed us and put a fire in some folks and changed the way we look at things. But Lord, we're praying for a double portion of that spirit here as we study the book of, uh, of Colossians. And Lord, we just pray that your anointing would be here and that you'd take the words that come out of my mouth, which otherwise would be so so empty, but infuse them with your authority, the authority to change the way we think about ourselves, the way we see you, the way we live our life, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, everything. Holy Spirit, in all your fire and power, land on this word. And I pray, Lord God, for everyone listening through podcasts or television or any other means, Lord, that you would just, God, do the same thing in their minds, open their minds and hearts to receive your word deeply and profoundly, that it would change them. Because otherwise, this is a tremendous waste of time. Be present in all your power in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. The first half of this message, I'm going to give some background stuff. That's going to be important for our study of the book of Colossians. The second half, we'll get into the first piece of content uh, that we find in these first three verses in the book of Colossians. I want to tell you a little bit about the Apostle Paul. Because since we spent so much time in the Gospel of Luke, some of you don't even know there was an Apostle Paul. Paul was, uh, he, he wasn't, um, he didn't, we, there's no evidence that he knew Jesus personally when Jesus was on earth. We don't read about him until about three years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. 
He was at this time a Pharisee. He had some pretty high credentials. He was a very educated man. And he was a passionate advocate for his faith. The Pharisaical form of Judaism. Because of that, he persecuted Christians. He saw them as a, a heretical uh, a sect, a heresy of Judaism. So he persecuted them. He oversaw some of uh, their executions. And then at one point, as far as we can tell, around 35, 36 A.D., three years or so after Jesus was crucified and ascended into heaven, uh, he met Jesus, the ascended Lord. Uh, riding on his horse, the Lord appeared to him and revealed himself to him. And um, as a result of that encounter, Paul converted and became a passionate defender of the Christian faith. He now saw that that he was misguided before, and that the Yahweh he'd always served was, in fact, the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. He became, he felt called to be one of the apostles. That's one of the foundational pillars of the church. He's the only apostle who, wasn't a, who, who didn't uh, spend time with Jesus while he was here in his incarnate form. But he was, felt called to be an apostle and a church planner, one of the founding fathers of the early church. He met with the other apostles, and they confirmed his calling. And so 13 of the... Uh, Documents in the New Testament are written by Paul, or a disciple of Paul. Uh, he, he's played an f- incredible, important role in the foundation of the church. That's the Apostle Paul. When he became a follower of Jesus, it, as it often does, it messed up his life. He had a good thing going in, in his leadership position, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he said. And, and, and he, was, he was going down a, 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 the track of having a very nice life. When he starts to follow Jesus, it's nothing but trouble. Hello. And so he's, a, he's a, uh, on the road all the time. He's planting churches all over the place. But he's also stirring up a lot of trouble. He gets in trouble with his former colleagues uh, in the Pharisaical form of Judaism. He gets in trouble with the law. He's thrown into prison quite a number of times. He's beaten. He's flogged. Uh, he's shipwrecked. Uh, he goes through a lot of trouble. But he had joy in his heart because he was doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Apostle Paul. In fact, when he's writing this letter, and this is going to be important to, to remember as we go through this, this book, when he's writing this letter to the Colossians, he is in prison. He'd been in prison once again. And uh, uh, he's writing this. If you understand this book in its original, in its original context, and we're always going to be kind of coming back to this, he's, this book becomes a sort of subversive track, subversive track, that Paul, as this prisoner, is writing to this church out in Colossians, and it has everything to do with the Roman Empire. So now let's talk about Colossae which is the location of the, 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 the Colossian Christians. Colossae was a, uh, about a medium-sized city. It once was uh, larger and had more influence about four centuries before the time of Christ, but because of economic changes, it had lost some of that economic power and some of that influence. And so it's, it's a middle-sized town. Um, the churches there weren't started by Paul. Actually, Paul never had met these folks but they recognized his apostolic authority. The church had been founded by a disciple of Paul named Euphrates. We read about him in verse 7. And so he's writing this to the, 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 the city of Colossae, the Christians that are there. The most important thing for us to know about Colossae is that it was part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at this time was, was, was vast. Here's a little map uh, of the whole thing. Colossae is right there where it's in modern-day Turkey. And it's, it's really at the heart of the Roman Empire. And if you can see the, the kind of outline there, that, that's the sort of scope of the Roman Empire. It was massive. Uh, the, the, the most massive and some would argue the most brilliant empire humans have ever seen. It went all the way up there to England. 
uh, up to uh, Ireland, down to North Africa, over to Egypt. It was just expansive. Now, the reason why the Romans were so good at expanding and conquering people was because they, 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 they were masters of efficiency. They kept things very simple. And what it meant to be part of the Roman Empire that we've got to always remember as we're reading this and studying this book of Colossians is this. Their deal with people was basically this. We will let you live and we'll even protect you if you'll just pay allegiance to us. Give allegiance to us. All we ask is your devotion. Be patriotic. That's all we ask. And we'll let you live and, and have a certain amount of autonomy, but your allegiance has to be to us. Now, what allegiance means is this. A, you pay your taxes, and they tax people pretty steeply, and that's how they got all the nice roads. All roads lead to Rome. They really, you know, did up things well. You pay your taxes, and then there's a few perfunctory duties, patriotic duties that you have to do. Uh, like, like honor the emperor. That's actually the heart of it. Which means when you walk by a statue of Caesar... Uh, you just kind of nod your head. It's kind of pledging allegiance to Caesar. Or in some locations, you're supposed to occasionally offer up incense to the statue. And it was just a way of paying respect. They didn't care what you actually believed. I mean, they had this official religion about how Caesar was divine and all that. But a lot of people didn't take that very seriously. They didn't care what you believed on the inside as long as you appear uh, patriotic, as long as you're, you're one of us. You show your allegiance to the Roman Empire. The early Christians didn't get along very well with that program. They paid their taxes. They had no trouble paying taxes. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 13 to pay taxes. They, they didn't think government was worth you know, getting in trouble with. Uh, so just, just pay it. They want your money. Give them your money. They did have trouble revering the emperor. They had trouble pledging allegiance to the, to the empire. They understood that they follow one Lord. There's only one Lord. His name is Jesus, and you can't have two of them. And so the only authority they recognized was Jesus. The only kingdom they recognized was the kingdom of God. The only value system they recognized was the value system of the kingdom of God. And this set them at odds with the empire. They wouldn't so much as just nod their head when they went by the statue. To them, that was compromising. It was, it was, it was encroaching on their singular devotion to Jesus. And so people would notice this. Hmm, they, don't, they don't nod their head when they go by the, the statue. So they'd report them, and that's why they'd be thrown into prison. It wasn't that they were trying to overthrow the government. They didn't care enough about the government to try to overthrow the government. But they didn't honor the government. They didn't honor the empire. And that made them dangerous. That made them subversive. That's why Paul gets thrown into prison. That's why shortly after this time, Christians would start to get rounded up in in, in masses and burned alive and fed to the lions and things of that sort. They just were seen as being subversive. They didn't get along with the ways of the empire. This is why Paul calls them holy ones, to the the holy people at Colossae. Now, when we think of holy people, I don't know about you, but I sometimes think of prissy people, uh, anal people, people who get word at the word anal, uh, people who are, who who carry the Bibles like this. Uh, you know, they they, they, they swag their finger at people. They, they like to judge. We're the holy people. We're the holy. We're the righteous. You're the sinners. We're the righteous. You got that straight? We're the holy ones. We think of something like that, something very religious. I do anyways. The word, the word holy though, as it's used in the original context, doesn't have that connotation. It literally means, hagios means set apart ones. Those who are set apart. And it certainly has behavioral implications and they look a little bit different, whatever, but, but it just means consecrated for a different purpose. They're, 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 they, you don't go with the flow. You're set apart. There's something that is distinctive there. 
So it's the set-apart ones that are at Colossae. These are folks who just march to a different drummer. They're part of a different kingdom. They're aliens in this land. They follow a different Lord. They know that their purpose is not all about the here and now. They understand that they have a higher purpose and they're called to advance the cause of their kingdom. And they don't share the values of this empire. People of the empire, for example, find their security in, in, in the armies that protect them. But the people of the kingdom of God, they find their security in Jesus Christ alone. And they don't seem in the early church to be that concerned whether they live or die as long as they're in right relationship with God. So they don't even cling to their own lives. Uh, people of the empire, the Roman empire, as with all empires, usually find their happiness in the acquisition of things. Whereas people of the kingdom of God, those who are set apart, they, they tend to find their happiness in just doing the will of God and in sharing their things and in serving others. People of the empire, of all empires throughout history, tend to get their identity from the empire. We belong to the empire. Or from whatever particular culture that they're in. Or, or they get their identity from, from the recognition or the applause of the people or, or the fame that they have or anything of the sort. But these oddball set-apart people from the kingdom of God, they get their identity from the relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't care about the applause of, of the crowd. They care about the applause of Jesus, the well done, thou good and faithful servant. They care what God thinks about them and he tells them what, the, what he thinks about them on Calvary when he gives his life for them. These odd balls set apart people of the kingdom of God just don't quite blend in with the ways of the empire. People in the empire tend to just follow their pleasure, the pleasure principle. If it feels right, it must be right. But the people of the kingdom of God often forego temporal pleasures to please their heavenly father. They're just, they just march to a different drummer. They're a minority oddball group in a majority world that becomes increasingly hostile to them because they just don't fit. They're, they're, they're sometimes seen as killjoys in the early church. Uh, you know, everybody likes a little slaughtering now and then, right? The gladiators, you know, a little, if a little violence does the heart good, and so that was a, um, a primary form of entertainment in the, throughout the Roman Empire. But these Christians didn't like that. They, they didn't celebrate people being slaughtered. They wouldn't participate in people being slaughtered unless it was them that was being slaughtered and that happened you know, quite frequently after 64 AD. But they just don't fit. They got different values, different way of looking at the world. Now because they're a small minority group in an increasingly hostile majority empire, there's a strong sense of camaraderie that characterizes the early church. That's why Paul calls them brothers and sisters. To the brothers and sisters... Uh, in Colossae, in Christ. Brothers and sisters, they saw each other as family. They, know, they, they, they knew they needed one another. They clung together. Brothers and sisters. Paul's saying that even though he's never met these folks. He doesn't have a personal relationship with them, but they are in Christ, and that makes them brothers and sisters. A little footnote, by the way. Um, some of your translation might, just, might have to the brethren at Colossae. In fact, some of you are aware of this Big controversy about Bible translations. Should you say, you know, just brothers or brothers and sisters? And those who say you should just say brothers point out the fact that in the Greek, it just has brothers. Adelphoi in the Greek. So they say, we, if you want to take the Bible literally, you should just say to the brothers at Colossae. Which then, if that's what you've been taught, you're listening to this and saying, why do you add to the Bible? Brothers and sisters. Been feminized. You got the Jezebel spirit going on. You got an agenda. You're a liberal. So let me just say a word about that, because I get asked that on occasion. Here's the thing, here's the thing. In the ancient Jewish worldview, I've said this many times, but the, the entire culture was, was sexist, patriarchal and sexist. So here's the deal. Uh, you, when you refer to groups, you have to, in, in uh, the Greek, Koine Greek, it's, it's called, it's the language of the New Testament, refer to it either in the masculine or the feminine. 
brothers or sisters. And the deal was this. Uh, if there's one man in the crowd, you call the whole crowd brothers. Because you never want to sissify a guy. That was the thinking. Now, it didn't work the other way. It, it takes all women to refer to the group as sisters. But if there's one guy, it's all brothers. When Paul says to the Adelphoi in, in Colossae, he's not saying, hey, I only want to talk to the guys. The women, are, you know, women can't hear this letter being read. No, he's referring to all the people. And, 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 and the context makes that very clear. So get this. If we translate it literally, we, we, we distort the meaning of the text. Paul's meaning isn't to exclude women. His meaning is to talk to everybody. But since there's guys there, for all we know, it's maybe a small percentage of them. But since there's any guys there, he has to, by the conventions of the language, refer to the brothers at, at, at Colossae. But his meaning is both brothers and sisters. So sometimes when you're translating the Bible, you have to go for the intention rather than the literal word. word. You find, see what I'm saying? So I, I think it's far more accurate to say brothers and sisters than it is just to say brothers. Because if we just say brothers, we are only referring to men. Or if we say sisters, we're only referring to women. When the point of the passage is to say, I'm referring to everybody who's in Christ in Colossae. Thank you. Thank you. That's why I'm a strong defender of inclusive language Bibles. Uh, and it's not about some agenda. It's because I, I just think they're, they're a lot more accurate. So the TNIV or the NRSV are the ones that that we go by here. Okay, having said all that, the point I want to make now is that they saw each other's family. They needed one another. They would meet together, we know from both biblical records in the book of Acts and also from secular accounts, that they would at least frequently, in some locations, meet daily. they get together every morning and they would share a meal together and that was their communion when they would use that as a reminder of our covenant, the sign of the covenant the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then they would uh, sing and worship, and then they'd study the Bible or study uh, the apostles' teaching. Uh, they, 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 they knew they needed one another. Why? Because they're a minority group standing up to a majority population that's increasingly hostile. Uh, they, they, they are there to encourage one another to live faithful for the kingdom. The Roman Empire, like every empire, including the American Empire, is full of propaganda. Constantly pumping values and ideas and identities uh, into our brains. And, and these folks understood that we need one another. If we're going to stand up against that, we got to stick together. we got to hold one another accountable uh, to live this kind of countercultural, subversive life that we're called to live. So they hung together uh, and encouraged one another and fought for one another. They refused to have any human enemy. They understood the teachings of Jesus and Paul about loving your enemies. They never had any human enemy. But they did know they had an enemy. His name is Satan and his principalities and powers. And they used the means and the systems of society to try to get us to compromise, to try to, uh, to undermine the witness that we're called to live, to try to get us to be sucked into the values of the fallen culture, and on and on and on. And so this group was like a family. You find family language going throughout the Bible. They hung on to one another. They encouraged one another. They confronted one another. They were a subversive, countercultural, revolutionary, even anarchistic group. Not anarchistic in a sense of violence. They didn't participate in any violence. Not anarchistic in a sense that they wanted to overthrow the government because they didn't care enough about the government to overthrow it. But they're anarchistic in the sense that they only recognized one power, one lord, one master, one kingdom. And they lived that way day by day by day. And just in the process of doing that, well, they set themselves apart from the culture at large. All that is to say this as we enter into studying the, the book of Colossians. The main goal, you got to just know 
up front what Woodland Hills Church is about. This is our, we have an agenda. We don't keep it quiet. Here, here's what we're about. Here's what we're trying to do to you every weekend and, and every chance we get. This is what we're trying to do. Trying to get back to that. We're trying to get back to that. To enter into the mindset and the ethos and the framework of the early church. To try to create a context where people relate to one another as family. Where we stand up and resist the values and the indoctrination and the propaganda of the empire. Where we're learning how to live beautiful, loving, servant, humble, countercultural lives. Because Christianity is not just about beliefs. It's, it's about how it translates into our life and how, how we treat one another and how we treat our neighbor. And, and how we relate to the world. We're, we're, our goal is to get back to that mindset of the early church where they understood that they're a minority group in an in a increasingly hostile majority world and their values are very, very different. It's profoundly hard here. In fact, some of you may be saying, what do you mean Christians are a minority group in a hostile majority culture? We've already won. Why? Well, this is a Christian nation. We won. And the reason why there's no difference between American values and Christian values is because we won. You know, so, so yeah, they had to pay a price back then. It was hard back then. But now it's relatively easy. You just have to get born. And by, by default, you're kind of Christian, right? And the answer is no. We already lost. That's what makes it hard. We lost this thing. Because almost from the start, the church was co-opted. And this is true of every empire Christianity has found itself. The empire is at work, and there's principalities and powers at work through, through the empire to subvert the values of the kingdom. And to get kingdom people to just sort of blend in. And you can keep your beliefs. No, that's fine. Keep your beliefs, but don't live dangerously. At least on the outside, look like everybody else. Act like everybody else. Have the same values as everybody else. And so the church has, almost from the beginning absorbed the values of American culture and even baptized the values of American culture and Christianized the values of American culture, which is why today, to a large degree at least, the church in America isn't just no different from the empire. It's sort of super empire. It's empire on steroids. It's empire in Jesus' name. So far from contrasting with the empire, we just sort of blend in with the empire and go, yay, empire, our empire versus every other empire. Chesterton said this about the church in, in uh, England in the early 20th century as Christianity was sort of slowly disappearing, the cultural Christianity. And he was kind of saying, don't worry about that because that wasn't the true thing anyways. I love this quote. It's one of my favorite. He says, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. Rather, it has been found difficult and therefore not tried. Ooh. <laughs> Conviction. Uh, no, see, this is absolutely true. Where, yeah, there's been a veneer, uh, kind of a gloss of, of, of Christianity in England and the whole Western world, yeah. Um, and that is slowly disappearing. And so you got people fighting for it. Oh, we've got to hold on to this veneer, this, this cultural Christianity. Make sure that we have, you know, Ten Commandments in certain buildings and in God we trust. And we have that, well, then we think, well, we're, we're still keeping this a Christian nation. When, in fact, I submit to you that thinking that way is the problem. Um, uh, the, the, the real thing has never been identified with that. Now, the real thing uh, is, is difficult. It, it's difficult. And, and, and to try it, to try to live out the kingdom life is to try to get back to this first century mindset where you understand that the value, the kingdom doesn't look like America or any other culture. The kingdom doesn't look like a, a political party. The kingdom looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross for the enemies who are crucifying him while he's praying for their forgiveness. That's the kingdom. And to the degree that we live out that... We're going to be looking different from the culture. And so he, we, here within this church, it's always about that. To get back, to get, to, to help, get to, to the coin drops in the slot. 
we understand and see just how radical this kingdom thing is. And so frequently in our messages, we're talking about how distinct the kingdom is from the culture. And, and, and we've tried to provide context which people can get to meet one another and maybe start to form some of these relationships where we start helping one another and supporting one another and encouraging one another. And, and, and so we have the table on the internet and we have these adventure series that we go through now and then and we have classes like Discover Jesus and Discover the Kingdom and all these different ways that we're trying to provide a context in which people, the coin can drop in the slot. No program will do that. We, we've learned that. There's no programmatic way of going about this. But we, we want to create space for God to show up and take some of us, all of us are in the process of doing this, who have been indoctrinated one way, to begin to see the world and see God and see our lives the way they did here in the early church. Subversive, countercultural, revolutionary. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Now that was all by way of introduction and I got 10 minutes left. All righty there. Now I want to talk about the first piece of content. It's going to be succinct uh, uh, and to the point, Lord, help me with this one. Uh, the first piece of content I want us to get, and it's just foundational to everything, it's found in the verse where Paul says, to the holy people who are, who are in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at that. It's rather odd because he speaks of being in Christ the way he speaks about being in Colossae. <laughs> now maybe some of us who read the Bible a lot, we're so used to it, we don't know, notice how unusual this is. But it's really weird. To speak about in Christ as though it was an address. It'd be like me saying, uh, you know where I live? Uh, I live uh, in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, United States, in Christ. And some of you would go, well, what zip code is that? I never heard of it. He, he treats it like a location in Christ. And this is a foundational concept for Paul. That's why it's, it's one of the first things he says in all of his epistles, in Christ. It's the main way that followers of Jesus are distinguished from non-followers of Jesus. They are in Christ. Now, I'm going to say a word about what it means in reality to be in Christ, and then I want to say a word about what it means in our experience. Because our experience is very often, in fact, usually different from reality. Uh, Here's an analogy that I've used, I think, several times here, but some analogies are that good, so I'm going to use it again. All right, here's the thing. Here's a glass. Glass. Nothing is in the glass. Here is a creature. My son makes these creatures. His name is Nathan, and you can pick these creatures up at NathanBoyd.com, no, .etsy.com, NathanBoyd.etsy.com, and yes, that was a commercial. This little creature here is, uh, I'm going to name him Intimacy, because look, he's pointing to, to, to his eyes. Can you see? He's, it's kind of hard to see. But he's pointing to his eyes. He's saying, into me, see, look into my eyes. But he's a creature. He's a creature. And now the glass was empty, but now there's something in the glass. The creature is in the glass. The creature has a new address in the glass. What's amazing is that what's true of the glass now becomes true of the creature. If I'm going to look at the creature, I've got to look through the glass. If I'm going to look at the glass, I've got to look at the creature. I've got to look at intimacy. If I'm going to hold up the glass, I'm holding up the creature. If I'm holding up the creature, I'm holding up the glass. If I put water in the glass, then the creature is going to get wet. If I want to get the creature wet, then I've got to put water in the glass. The identity of the glass and the identity of the creature are woven up together because everything that's true about the glass is also true about the creature you and I and all who have genuinely submitted to Jesus Christ are in Jesus. The same way, kind of, that we're in, that we're in Colossae. 
uh, or in St. Paul, Minnesota. We're in a location. Our address has changed. There's something metaphysical or something ontological, something in reality that happens when we surrender to Jesus Christ. We're put in a person. It's bizarre. There's like this mystical kind of thing. But what we need to know is that all that's true about the person of Jesus Christ now becomes transferred to us because we are in the person. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You see, Jesus Christ is righteous. I'm thinking you agree with that one. And we're in Jesus Christ. And so our righteousness is because we are in Jesus Christ. Because what's true of Christ now becomes true of us. What's his by nature becomes ours by grace. Jesus Christ is perfectly loved by the Father, right? Perfectly loved by the Father. That's what the triune God is all about. And now we are in Jesus Christ, so we are perfectly loved by the Father. Not with a secondary love, not with a derivative love, but the same love he has for Jesus, he has for us. That's why Paul says we are loved in the Beloved. It's by virtue of where we live. We live in Jesus Christ. We're loved in the beloved. In fact, Paul says in the beginning of Ephesians, he says that those of us who are in Christ uh, are predestined to be holy and blameless and spotless before him in love. Now, it's not predestined that you're in Christ, as though God was saying, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, you know, this creature I put in the glass, the other one I let go. He doesn't pick and choose like that. But he's pulling everybody to get in Jesus Christ. And when we submit we are in Jesus Christ. So now, once you're in Jesus Christ, all that is true about Jesus Christ is predestined for you. And so, Jesus Christ is holy. You are holy. Jesus Christ is righteous. You are righteous. Jesus Christ is blameless. You are blameless. It's all you step into the stream and it's taking you to one destiny. We are in Jesus Christ. It's the new reality. It's our address. We're dancing with the triune God in Jesus Christ. That's what's true in reality. Now, what's true in our experience? Likely not all of that. Uh, the address we live in in our head is the product of every experience we've gone through. Unless you've been involved in some serious brain discipleship already, and you've been learning how to take thoughts captive, and you've been learning how to uh, just submit uh, your, your brain to, to God and to choose the truth over a lie, uh, unless you've been doing that, then who you think you are and where you think you live, the story that you live in, is going to be the product of everything. We inherit an identity. From the world, and the world is fallen and screwed up. So guess what? Our identity is fallen and screwed up. We think we're one thing, and in fact, we're not. The world of difference between how you experience yourself and what's true in reality. Once in a while, I enjoy a little bit of junk TV like the rest of us. So I'm watching some junk TV, and they had uh, Lady Gaga on. You know Lady Gaga? Uh, it was really, you know, she's actually a delightful... This shows my complete prejudice about... Uh, pop music and stuff, but uh, she was really articulate and, and, and intelligent, and, and uh, I guess, I, I don't know what I thought she was going to be like, but she, I liked her a lot. I don't like all that she does on stage, for sure, but she's really a sweetheart, and as she was talking, my heart just kind of went off her. She was getting this interview, and they showed a clip of somebody who took a video of her before a concert. Now, Lady Gaga, for those of you who are on a different planet, is like this super famous person. She's the most popular pop star right now. Uh, they said in this interview that she's the first person to ever have 10 million followers on Twitter. 10 million followers. She, got, she made more money last year than Oprah Winfrey, for crying out loud. So she is at the top of the top of the top. And they videotaped her before a concert, sold out concert, and she was having a meltdown, crying, saying that she's a loser and that she's going to disappoint the crowds. And, and she talked as though she'll be like this forever because of things that she went through. She was rejected in high school, picked on a lot, you know, kind of geeky, just didn't fit in anything. Some people beat her up and put her in a dumpster, you know, so she was just rejected. And her brain just locked it in. I'm a loser. I'm a misfit. Which, when you can begin to understand that, 
it, it kind of explains some of the behavior on the stage with her outrageous dress-ups and, you know, was she hiding behind the mask? But she's amazingly self-aware about all this. But here's the thing. She is superstar if there ever was a superstar. She's super, superstar. She's super, superstar on steroids. But she thinks she's a loser. She really does think she's a loser. And so she's got to put on all this stuff in order to get up on stage. No one would agree with that except for her inside of her head. How she sees herself as the product of stuff that happened to her. And unfortunately, she thinks she's destined to always be struggling with this. It's true, for some, it's true of all of us to some degree. Some of us live in an address of fear. Something happened to you. I don't know what it was, but something happened to you and your brain installed it. And now you live under the right situations. Boom, there you are living in fear. Or you live in the address of addiction. Or you live in the address of violence. Or you live in the address of I got to achieve. So you're always trying to perform and put on. Or maybe you live in the address of victim because somebody did something to you and you became a victim. And now your brain installs that as part of your fallen identity. And now whenever anything's wrong in the world or wrong with you, you got someone you can blame. Uh, we, we live at an address of betrayal or an address of pain or an address of lust or whatever it is. But it's not the address of Christ. Because unless we take our brains captive for Jesus Christ, they just run on autopilot from all the junk we inherited from this fallen, fallen, screwed up world. Folks, get, from the start, we got to get this. All of the growth in our, our life is about getting what is true in reality inside our head. Get, just, get, squeeze it in there. Uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what's true about you. What dad says is not. What grandma said is not. What happened on the date is not what's true about you. This is what's true about you. And our main job is to agree with this and see it, envision it, imagine it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. So all that is true about, about Christ becomes true about you by grace. And see, if, if we can, this happens through having time in prayer where you envision this, uh, daydream about this, put up post-it notes about your identity in Christ, get friends in your life who will remind you about who you are in Christ, especially when you're starting to bottom out like Lady Gaga did and, and, and you start running the old tapes, you need people who are there to say, oh, no, no, this isn't the real you. No, 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 you're in Christ. Uh, and in Christ, there's no fear. He's not given to us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and sound mind. And you can do all things as you are in Christ. And you have a capacity to love more than, than, than hey, when you are in Christ. And some it's about surrounding ourselves with family who will be reminders and encouragers of our true identity. And as we live out this true identity, guess what happens? The, the more this gets on the inside, the core of our being, the more we find ourselves at odds with the empire. See, I, I, otherwise we absorb the empire. We just inherit the empire. We inherit, we inherit wherever we're, we're a part of. But when we enter into the kingdom walk and begin to know who we are in Christ and let Christ define us rather than any other voice and give more credibility to God than we do to any other voice in our head, regardless of how it feels. Because garbage always feels true if that's the only thing you've ever felt. No, no, no. Being a disciple of Jesus is committing your mind to saying, I will choose what, is, what he says about me is true, regardless of how weird it feels in my head. Uh, otherwise, you'll never get to the point where it actually feels true. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And as we're transformed from the inside out, we find ourselves just having different values than we used to have. Uh, finding different things uh, turn us on, float our boat. We start marching to a different drummer. Now we're at odds with the empire. Now our lives are subversive. Christianity is not about some try-hard thing where we're going we're gonna to be radical today, man. We're going to do something different. No, it's about a transformation, and it's gradual, that comes from the inside out, the inside out. As we take our identity, our address in Christ, and get it way deep on the inside. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. That's... To the Colossians in Christ, to the Minnesotans in Christ, 
to the Padrissoners in Christ. Know who you are in Christ. And you transform the world that way. I'm going to call the uh, prayer team to come up here. And if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and uh, spend some time in prayer here. Or if you just want to kneel at the altar and God's working on something in your, in your mind and heart, uh, give them some time to do that. Also, I'm told that somebody's uh, having a party out in the gathering area, a birthday party, and they invite everybody to come, and they have uh, a bunch of free pizza and a bunch of free pop. So there you go. So I want you to stop by and hang out and meet some people and uh, have some free pizza and pop as I close in prayer. Father, bless the pizza and pop. <laughs> and we bless you for making us new creatures in, in Christ Jesus, loved in Christ Jesus, blessed in Christ Jesus seated in high places above principalities and powers in Christ Jesus, forgiven in Christ Jesus, set on fire with your love in Christ Jesus. And as we leave this place, Lord God, will you sear that into our minds and hearts that we can begin to manifest the beauty of your unique set-apart kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.